Disclaimer. South Park is the property of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. All opinions voiced are our own and not theirs. The following program contains educational course language and due to its hilariously inappropriate content should not be listened to by anyone. and welcome to our seventh episode. My name is Sophie. And I'm Amanda. We've already tackled some intriguing topics and we're excited to bring you more. This South Park podcast is nothing like you've heard as it dives into some complex social constructs and issues that South Park plays off of. We hope you leave today thinking, I learned something today and how to chuckle. Today's South Park episode is season one, episode seven, Pink Eye. Fun fact, we are 186 days away from Halloween. That's about six months. Also, Sophie, what's the proper way to say Worcestershire sauce? So the proper way to say it is Worcestershire sauce. And it's from Worcestershire. So Worcestershire sauce? Yeah. Okay. And you can say it with a British accent anytime you go to the supermarket. Some Worcestershire sauce, please. <laughs> Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. We're all learning something today. I'm just going to say if I didn't say it right. You know, I've been in Canada for 15 plus years Re- now. It's been a while. Revoke her British card. Take it. <laughs> take it. <laughs> all right. So here's the plan. We're going to recap the episode talk zombies, pandemics, and offensive Halloween costumes. We're going to link listeners with a place to learn more, discuss our favorite part, have a nice cold iced coffee, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? And I hope you guys get that reference. So to recap this episode, Season 1, Episode 7, Pink Eye, it is Halloween and the Mer Space Station crashes into Earth, killing Kenny on impact. Oh no, Kenny! Soon, the zombies are taking over South Park, and the boys have to defeat the zombies before it's too late. Alrighty, friends, let's start talking about everyone's favorite flesh eaters. And no, we're not going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we're not a true crime podcast. Not diving there quite yet. Uh, we're going to talk about zombies. Now, zombies may not be as popular as they were when The Walking Dead was at its height, aka right before they murdered Glenn. I'm still salty about Spoiler. it. Spoiler! It has been like six years. If you haven't seen it, that's your own fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> but zombies are nothing new in our culture around the world. The ancient Greeks may have been the first civilization terrorized by a fear of the undead. Archaeologists have unearthed many ancient graves which contain skeletons pinned down by rocks and other heavy objects assumingly to prevent the dead bodies from reanimating. Zombie folklore has been around for centuries in Haiti, possibly originating in the 17th century when West African slaves were brought to work on Haiti's sugarcane plantations. Brutal conditions left the slaves longing for freedom. According to some reports, the life, or rather afterlife, of a zombie represents the horrific plight of slavery. Oh, Mm -hmm. because they can never die. They're just like stuck, stuck, forever stuck in that position. Yeah, just doing their master's biddings. There are actually some documented cases, though, however, of what we would consider a zombie in a medical report. So medical reported journals. Though it's rare, there are several credible reports of people using these compounds to induce paralysis in people and then reviving them from the ground. So a 1997 article of the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, described three variable accounts of zombies. 
In one case, a Haitian woman who appeared to be dead was buried in a family tomb only to reappear three years later. What, what was she doing in those three years? An investigation revealed that her tomb was filled with stones and her parents agreed to keep her in a local hospital. Okay, that's, that seems weird. So what was she doing for those three years? Why was her tomb filled with stones? In another well-documented case, a Haitian man named Clarivis Narcisse entered a local hospital with severe respiratory problems in 1962. After he slipped into a coma, Narcisse was declared dead and was buried shortly thereafter. However, 18 years later, a man walked up to Angeline Narcisse in a village marketplace, insisting she was his sister. Okay, but we must assume from that one that he's been wandering around for 18 years and maybe he's got some like amnesia or something maybe because apparently the doctors and the townspeople and family members all identified him as he claimed to be the narcisse who had claimed to be buried alive and then dug up and put to work on the sugarcane plantations there it is so then mm-hmm. he got away mm-hmm. huh i don't know if you know the answer to this but in Haiti, there is a strong voodoo. Absolutely, and that's kind of where a lot of like the witch doctor ideas come from and things like that in a lot of those cultures. And so that kind of how it all links back to zombies and gets connected in there that way. Interesting. Mm. I like this. Mm. So zombies in pop culture. Zombies are not just an aspect of fictional history as much as we want them to be real. Although, not really. <laughs> According to the Undead 18th Century by Linda Drust, zombies appeared in literature as far back as 1697 and were described as spirits or ghosts, not necessarily cannibalistic fiends. On the movie scene, however, we can see it as early as 1932 during the release of White Zombie. So they have been around for many a days. But it wasn't until 1986 or 68 that zombies acquired a cult-like following of their own with the release of Night of the Living Dead by George Romero. Have you ever seen that one? I have, it's actually. A pretty good one. It, you can actually find the whole thing start to finish on YouTube as well if you haven't seen it. Over the next 15 years, Romero directed two more zombie films, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. As special effects technologies improved with each film, the zombies appear to be more gruesome and more realistic. I found that that movie was really good for, like, the soundtrack. Oh, That's what was scaring me. Yeah. yeah. And it was kind of one of the first ones that actually really, like, I found gave the zombies kind of, like, a purpose and a personality kind of in the way. Not just, like, ooh. <laughs> it was, like, ooh, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I want to say in that one, didn't they try to open a door? It was, like... I think they were fairly smart zombies. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how you see the progression over time goes. Um, so in the 1980s, dozens of zombie films were made. Even Scooby-Doo had his own battles as one of my favorite, favorite movies ever, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. And it just continued to rise in popularity with shows like The Walking Dead, I Zombie, and of course the 2013 release of the movie World War Z starring Brad Pitt. I'm gonna take a minute to rant here for a second. Nothing against you, Mr. Pitt. You are a very talented actor. Why did you sign up for this movie? Because there's a book on it. Yes, yes, sorry. For those of you who don't know, World War Z is actually based on a novel originally. The novel, amazing, so good. I literally had nightmares about 
stuff that went down. And it was the classic zombies of like, if you could walk fast enough, you could outrun them. They didn't want to just bite you and move on. They wanted to eat you until you were gone. So in 2013, after reading the book, I was really excited to go to the movie. Finally went to the movie. So disappointed. Like, what is this? Zombies do not A, run. Zombies do not bite you and just keep going. Like, this was more rabies than zombies. And I will forever be mad about that. It's this reason, this movie and this book alone is why people in movies need to have someone who's read the book and just sit there and hit the director when they get too far off the book. Like, that didn't happen. It's actually kind of interesting. A research study was done not too, too long ago in which when Walking Dead was kind of at its height about why people were so fascinated with the zombie pandemic. Like, why did we want that kind of thing to happen? Was it because we wanted to run the entire country free? We wanted to not have to worry about society in general yeah but basically the main reason that people wanted to have a zombie apocalypse take over the world is so they would be debt free they wouldn't have to worry about loans anymore or the things that plagued them other than zombies they would just have to worry about making it through each day survival and the hundreds of thousands of dollars that were in debt and are crushing us within this world were just wiped away huh i mean it makes sense yeah good reason Okay, so as Herschel in The Walking Dead once said, humankind's been fighting plagues from the start. We get our behinds kicked for a while, then we bounce back. It's nature correcting herself, restoring some kind of balance. Well, nature has certainly been restoring balance multiple times. I don't need to tell anyone that who's been living on this planet between 2020 and 2021. You'll know why. But let's look at some of the earlier times in history at different plagues that have accosted humankind and maybe try to remind ourselves how lucky we are that at least we got to go through a pandemic that had indoor plumbing. I know I am. Oh my god, yeah. Oh. I know, like we're going to be talking about these plagues and just imagine going through all of this with all of the wonders of modern society of like the 1300s. So first up, there are a few documented plagues recorded before this, but the first major plague is the Justinian Plague, first appearing in Egypt. The Justinian Plague th spread through Palestine, Byzantine Empire, and then all the way through the Mediterranean. It changed course of the empire, squelching Emperor Julius's plans to bring the Roman Empire back together and causing massive economic struggle. Sound familiar? It is also credited for creating an apocalyptic atmosphere that spurred the rapid spread of Christianity. You know, it's funny because like even just you saying first appearing in Egypt and plague, of course my brain went to the plagues of Egypt. Yeah. So I could see how that would spur the spread of Christianity when you're feeling hopeless mm -hmm. and you need someone to look to. Yeah, you need something to blame for all the uncertainty that's going on. And at this time, religion was the best answers to find. So that's where a lot of people turned. Especially when this Justinian plague reoccurred for the next two centuries, eventually killing around 50 million people or about 26% of the world population at the time. That just goes to show how many people we have on the planet right now. Yep, yep, yep. It's actually supposedly one of the first significant appearances of the bubonic plague, which is the cause of the Black Death, but because there's no way to actually significantly, statistically, scientifically prove that, we're just kind of making our best guesses. So on to the next plague, the 11th century, leprosy. Okay. Also, anytime I see leprosy, I think of, he's got the L word. 
Ah, leprosy. No, no, no. It's a four-letter word. Ah, lice. <laughs> I love it. Though it has been around for ages, leprosy grew into the pandemic in Europe in the Middle Ages, resulting in the building of numerous leprosy-focused hospitals to accommodate the vast number of victims. A slow-developing bacterial disease that causes sores and deformity, leprosy was believed to be a punishment from God that ran in the family. This belief led a moral judgment or ostracization of victims. So if it's something that runs in your family, well, God must hate your family for giving you this horrible plight. It still affects tens of thousands of people a year, but it can be fatal if not treated by antibiotics. Thank God we live in a time with antibiotics. <laughs> and now moving on to the wonderful time that was the Great Pestilence, AKA the Black Death, 1350. The Black Death was responsible for the death of one-third of the entire world's population. The second largest outbreak of the bubonic plague possibly started in Asia and moved west in caravans. So this was actually Hun communities, so individuals in Asia who were kind of nomadic territories. It's thought, very, very, very big theory here, that maybe they were in some kind of back country in which nobody had ever been before they were migrating their tribe and they somehow stumbled upon a naturally occurring source of the bubonic plague and then from there it spread from within their caravans and their communes and then when they went into towns to do trading and things it just expelled or blew up within those communities as well so that's one possible side of the origin Entering through Sicily in 1345 AD, when plague sufferers arrived in the Messenia, it spread through Europe rapidly. Dead bodies actually became so prevalent that many remained rotting on the ground in the streets, causing a constant stench in a lot of the cities. And keep in mind, this is 1300s, so a lot of the basic cleanliness properties that we follow today, like public bathrooms, not leaving your animals to run around in the street and defecate everywhere. And oh, throwing your literal shit out the window. Literal shit, yeah. So that didn't help very much. Fun fact, there's actually one community in Italy where before it was implemented worldwide, they actually had basic cleanliness products put into place and procedures put into place. So there was someone who would go around and collect all the corpses so that they wouldn't just litter the streets. They had make sure that they had access to clean, friendly running water. There was bathhouses that the citizens were actually given tax money to go and use weekly. So I don't know if it's because of that, but that one community did suffer significantly less impacts from the Black Death. England and France were so incapacitated by the plague that the countries called a truce to their war. The British feudal system collapsed when the plague changed economic circumstances and demographics. Ravaging populations like Greenland, Vikings lost the strength to wage battle against native populations, and exploring their North American countries came to a halt. Fun fact! There was actually a ship that had left Iceland in the early 1350s, went to a European colony in Norway, I want to say, and upon arriving there, they discovered that this colony had been infected with the Black Death. And crew members on their ship were starting to show symptoms of this sickness. So rather than going back to Iceland and infecting their community members and their family members and their loved ones, the crew of that Icelandic ship decided not to leave. 
they decided to simply stay and possibly perish from the Black Plague in this foreign country rather than bring it back to their home country, which is accredited the reason that Iceland kept safe from the Black Plague for many, many, many years. That is cool. Mm. Isolation. <laughs> which also came to be in France, where we got quarantined because people were coming to enter and they would have to take the two weeks of separation. So that's where it came from. We're going to fast forward just a little bit. Oh, wait, no, sorry. One more fun fact about the Black Death. I took a university class on it in case you didn't know. So fun fact, what we once knew as the bubonic plague is completely treatable with antibiotics in today's world. People actually do still go into the hospital having conditions of the Black Death, but it presents very similarly to a lot of other things. So it takes some time for the doctors to figure out what's going on. And plus, it's just so uncommon in today's society that you don't even think to look for it, right? But there's actually said to be certain locations within the Amazon rainforest in which the Black Death is naturally occurring. And it is a strain of the virus that is antibiotic resistant. So if somebody today went to that one community, raised up the native bubonic plague, we could literally have another outbreak of the Black Death worldwide that is medication resistant. I'd take COVID over that. Agreed. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna fast forward a few years to 1918, the Spanish flu. The avian-borne flu that resulted in the death of 50 million people worldwide. In 1918, the flu was first observed in Europe, the United States, and parts of Asia before swiftly spreading across the world. At the time, there were no effective drugs or vaccines to treat this killer flu. And fun fact, it's only called the Spanish flu because Spain was one of the only countries at the time actually giving reports about their numbers and things like that, whereas a lot of the other countries were just keeping those numbers to themselves. So even though Spain was experiencing the same kind of outbreaks as the rest of the world, because they announced their numbers, it got associated with them to the point that it became the Spanish flu. We can't not talk about the wonderfulness that was the 1980s when a certain new unidentifiable immunodeficiency virus popped up. We now know it as HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. In the beginning though, it was actually referred to as GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency, or I did not come up with this name. This is just repeating history, the 4-H club because it was originally thought that only Haitians, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and heroin users were at risk of developing this infection. Can you imagine being the 4-H club, aka the nice farm uh, organization where children uh, participate in multiple of activities and hearing that back in the day, that's uh, how people stigmatized against people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The 4-H club. Definitely different meanings. But as we now know, HIV is a completely preventable, treatable infection and virus. So for those of you who don't know where HIV first came from, it's basically believed that in the early 1920s, there was a group of hunters somewhere in West Africa. And while hunting chimpanzees, there was a certain level of bodily fluid mixture. So this could mean like while they were preparing the chimpanzee meat, maybe they had some cuts on their hand and there was the blood, direct blood to blood contact between the two. And from there, the simian virus from these chimp chimpanzees 
entered the human body and created the human immunodeficiency virus. And from there, it moved to Haiti in the 1960s, then to New York and San Francisco in the 1970s, creating the global pandemic that was the 1980s. This one's an interesting pandemic, too, because all the other ones you've talked about have affected a lot of people, but also most of them are respiratory. You know, it's coughing, that you're seeing symptoms. People are like, okay, hold on, people who are coughing or have sores, they're the ones transmitting it. Okay, we know how to isolate and how to treat that. Whereas when it was the 80s, they didn't know how to differentiate what was actually going on. Like, how was it being transmitted? Why is it just targeting certain people? It wasn't targeting certain people. It was, everyone is at risk, but when you don't know how the transmission works, it's very hard to isolate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until many years later, I want to say like even the late 1990s, that they figured out blood transfusions were effective means for transmitting HIV from person to person. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a matter of not knowing how it's spread and then how you react to that, but the in-between part always gets filled with lots of stigmatization. Um, In our current society, it looks like this, where we stigmatize against the gay communities and minority groups but it was still present in the early 11th century, 12th century, as we talked about, because they made that association with the religion. And they stigmatized those who weren't a part of their religion. Sorry. No, I'm just like, holy shit, yes! (laughs) (laughs) This isn't new. Yeah, no, stigma's always been a thing. Um, When I took my university class on the Black Plague, it was basically like, Okay, well, if I die from the Black Plague, I'm a martyr. God loves me. God's taking care of me. He's bringing me to that that level. But if you die of the Black Plague, my God's punishing you. You're bad. You're evil. You need death. So it's kind of funny how even within the same circumstances, that stigma can apply. And it's just like, no, you both died from the plague. God didn't... Yeah. Anyways, moving on to the 2003 SARS epidemic first identified in 2003 after several months of cases, severe acute respiratory syndrome, aka SARS, is believed to be possibly started through bats, spread through cats, and then to humans in China. Bats, cats, and rats. Followed by 26 other countries infecting a total of 8,096 people and causing 774 deaths. SARS is characterized as a respiratory problem, so dry cough, fever, body and headaches, and is spread through respiratory droplets from coughs and sneezes. Hmm, sound familiar? SARS was actually seen by global health professionals as a wake-up call to improve outbreak responses, and lessons from the pandemic were used to keep diseases like H1N1, Ebola, and Zika under control. And now, through the COVID-19 virus, we're seeing that countries that applied SARS protocols are having significantly better outcomes than those who didn't. And finally, we're going to talk about COVID-19 in 2019 until present. Actually, you know what? No, you guys are living through this. We're not going to touch this one with a 10-foot pole. Maybe in years to come, we will (laughs) research this topic. Well, actually, we will talk about it once we get to the South Park pandemic episodes so we'll get all chock full of COVID information then but for now I'm sure you know enough so if you want to learn more history.com is actually where I found a lot of this information there and they're stocked up with loads more so check them out 
And if you want to help, you can always check out your local Red Cross organization. They offer disaster relief wherever it's needed. So supporting them means you're going to help those who need it the most. For example, here in Canada, through the COVID-19 pandemic, the Red Cross has been providing vaccination support, deployment of field hospitals and health equipment distributions, supporting in long-term care homes. They have humanitarian workforce recruitment and training. They're working in indigenous communities. They're offering services to Canadians returning home. They're offering virtual care and friendly calls. Oh, I love that. Mm, That's so cute. Right? They're assisting people in vulnerable populations. They're supporting community organizations and so much more. So like we said, it's 186 days until Halloween. And obviously a huge thing about Halloween is that people dress up. Now, Amanda, do you know why we dress up for Halloween? Hmm. To get candy. I always assumed that was the trade-off. I mean, I think in modern times, definitely. But the origin of Halloween can be traced to the ancient Celtic celebration of Sowin. It looks like Samhain, but it's pronounced Sowin, where people would dress in costumes and light bonfires to chase off ghosts. Then the Catholic Church turned it into a more Christian-friendly All Saints Day, and the night before was called Hallow's Eve, and then eventually Halloween. And this is all from History.com. Now, what is one of your favorite Halloween costumes that you ever dressed up as? Mm, my mom made me an Ariel costume as a kid. <gasps> oh, like I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Honestly, growing up in England, um, and maybe this was just growing up in the 90s, but Halloween was scary. I remember this one time... My neighbor called my mom and said, by the way, there's this trick-or-treater. He's got a scary scream mask where, I don't know, there's some like red liquid in it to look like blood and he's jumping out at people, so be careful. And when he came to our house, my mom was ready. She's like, you get some candy, but please stop scaring people. But then I found more when I moved to Canada, it was more fun to dress up as like characters from Disney or just anything you really wanted to be. So... You know, definitely culture shock, but maybe that's just the 90s. Maybe the 2000s were just a bit more chill and not so scary. Well, we got closer and closer to the bubble wrap generation. Ah, yes, that is true. And of course, now as an adult, I try to more dress up as characters that when the kids come to the door, they'll be like, oh, it's Princess Anna or like Scooby-Doo or something like that. And these are just easier costumes to get together. Anyway. Fun fact, Comedy Central had reservations about the idea of Cartman dressing up as Hitler, as you can imagine, but Parker and Stone insisted it had to be a Hitler costume. Once the episode aired, however, the two received very few letters from upset viewers over the costume. Parker attributed this to the fact that people were becoming more familiar with the Cartman character, and thus recognizing that most of what he said and did was usually wrong. Now this is where the fun fact came in. More than Hitler, however, Comedy Central executives were worried about the use of Chewbacca costumes throughout the episode because of George Lucas's well-known tendency to file lawsuits against unauthorized Star Wars references or parodies. George Lucas, if you're listening, please don't sue us. We're just mentioning Chewbacca. Mm -hmm. The channel contacted the production company Lucasfilms about the episode and was asked to send a copy of the episode for them to review, and obviously it was approved, so that's good. So, let's talk about Cartman and his offensive costumes. We shouldn't have to explain why dressing up as Hitler or the KKK is a huge no-no, but we do, because there are people out there who have, and one is Prince Harry. I'm going to show Amanda a photo. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> so in the picture, it was the sun, and they said, Harry the Nazi, Princess Swastika outfit at a party. And he's basically wearing a white shirt with the armband with a swastika on it. So at least he didn't dress up as Hitler, but he did obviously have to come out and say, I made a mistake. There's obviously a reason why I should not be walking around looking like a Nazi officer. Mm-hmm. Try explaining that one to Megan, eh, Harry? <laughs> Oh my god. Oh dear. <laughs> and this is on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. It is out there. Well, apparently she's never looked her up her husband on the internet, though. So Maybe for the best. Maybe for the best. <laughs> so, of course, I wanted to talk about offensive Halloween costumes and why we need to stop dressing up as certain things. But to start with, what is the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? A lot of times when we talk about Halloween, you'll see a lot of articles talking about cultural appropriation. So I just wanted to put out the definitions there for you. So appreciation is when someone seeks to understand and learn about another culture to broaden their perspective and connect with others cross-culturally. Appropriation, on the other hand, is simply taking one aspect of a culture that is not your own and using it for your own personal interests, like purchasing a piece of jewelry or clothing that may have important cultural significance to that culture, but simply using it as a fashion statement. For example, Buying a set of chopsticks to eat with is perfectly acceptable. Using the same chopsticks as a hair accessory is not. That was really bad, actually, in the 90s. I remember that was a trend. Yep, yep, yep. Halloween is bad for culturally appropriate costumes, like we said. Many racially, ethnically, and culturally based costumes are intended to be one of two things. Humorous or erotic. So the internet pointed me to a website called Fun World, and oh my god, I found some costumes. And I saved the pictures on my phone. I'm going to show them to Amanda, but we'll explain what they look like. And all I can say is I've had these on my phone now for a week and the entire week. Anytime I tried to take a photo, I would see them and just cringe and be like, why do these exist? Okay, of course, starting with number one, powwow. And it's wow with an exclamation mark. So we're looking, obviously, at a sexy Native American woman is what the costume's supposed to be. Also, obviously, listeners cannot see these, and I really don't want to post these on our social media because I wish these photos did not exist. But one thing to notice is all the models they've chosen are pretty much Caucasian. I was going to say that. a white woman yeah gets worse so for anyone listening basically this costume is a very stereotypical native american fringe dress it's quite short and she's holding a staff and she's got a headband on yeah no there's not a lot to this costume but she is definitely not forgetting the fringe on her high heels, which you know were very important for chasing the buffalo. Absolutely. (laughs) Good Lord. Come on, people. All right, number two is called Gypsy Moon. So, I mean, I don't see her ass. Let's. I know, it's very covered. Mm. So what we're looking at right now is the stereotypical Romanian person. So uh, Romanian people are referred to as gypsies sometimes, and it's that tarot reader with the jingles kind of you want to think of hunchback of notre dame esmeralda that is exactly what this costume is looking like the romanian people have been very nomadic people they've been cast away from many countries a lot of stereotypes and they don't all do tarot they're not all occult so yeah fun fact about hitler though oh god (laughs) 
<laughs> so during World War II, it was, of course, the Jewish people that they were perse- persecuting to a large extent, but there was also a lot of gypsies that were persecuted as well. Basically, any kind of minority group that they didn't think fit within the culture at that time, and so a lot of gypsies suffered during the Holocaust as well. Oh, dear. So number three is called Beautiful Bones. So what we're looking at right now is, it's a very long dress. This isn't a a quote-unquote erotic costume. But it is a depiction of Dia de los Muertos. Day of the Dead. So a Day of the Dead costume. Now, fun fact, uh, my dad knows someone who went to Mexico during Day of the Dead. And I love what they did, and I want to know how to do this because I find a Day of the Dead gorgeous and just some of the cultural traditions that they do is just it's awesome Mm -hmm. I love it but what his friend ended up doing was he connected with a Mexican family and said to them I don't want to just come to Mexico paint my face in the skull form I want to come with you and I want to learn through you cultural appreciation right And actually, the makeup that everyone does is very symbolic to the family, very symbolic to the traditions. So when you see someone, and it's gorgeous, and I love when you see makeup artists do it, but there is that whole cultural appropriation. So you have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. So costume number four. So most of the costumes we've been looking at are sexy women costumes. What about the men? Well, how about Tequila Poppin' Dude? So this one, as you can imagine, we've got a man in a sombrero. He's got some um, holsters for his, well, it was listed to bottle holsters, so to put your uh, Corona in. And uh, it also comes with eight shot glasses. And two bottles of Jose Cuervo in hand. Great. Perfect. Not, not offensive at all. And the funny thing is, is this one, so there was this one, and then there was another one that was even more racist, can you believe? So there was this other costume, same guy, except it was like one of those blow-up costumes, and he was on, on the back of a donkey. You know, just great. Yeah. Who, who came up with these costumes? And last but not least... I was trying to find a geisha costume. That's a huge cultural appropriation. But I found this costume called Sensei Master. It's a costume. It comes with long gray eyebrows. It makes me really uncomfortable. I don't even know if this is cultural appropriation. It just makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) Of course, runners up. It always goes to the priest costumes, the rabbi costumes, and the sexy nun costumes. That's not cultural appropriation. That's just wrong. So, fun world. Not so fun. Don't go there. But to be honest, there were hundreds of terrible costumes on that website. But the worst part was the children's costumes. There was this costume. And it was a little girl. Of course. A little white girl. Of course. In a fringe dress. And I think she even had like a headband with a feather. And it was called Give Thanks. And I wanted to be like, are you kidding me right now? I'll give you something. <laughs> give you a lesson. Give you a piece of my mind. Give you an ass whooping. Give you anything. Yeah. <laughs> but no thanks. No thanks. So the problem is, it's racism isn't 
born you're not born with racism you you learn it right and Disney actually got in a lot of trouble recently so in 2016 Disney released the movie Moana which was great it was for those who haven't seen it Moana is the story of a Polynesian girl she teams up with Samoan uh, demigod Maui to go on a quest and save her people so everyone was super excited because the only Polynesian Disney movie we'd had so far was Lilo and Stitch which was like a little touch it was a little bit but we wanted a little bit more so for Halloween that year, Disney releases a children's costume for Maui. Of course, kids want to dress up as their favorite character. Uh, except for the fact that there's not much to work with in terms of clothes for Maui. He wears a grass skirt, he's got a necklace made of shells, and that's it. So the final product that Disney released was a bodysuit with brown skin, tattoos, Maui's necklace, and a grass skirt. Do you want to look this up? I don't have a picture of it. Oh, I might. I might, yeah. And, yeah. Pause for reaction. That just makes me uncomfortable. Like, legs too? Yeah. It's a full-on... Oh, God. And when it's not on the child, it looks even worse. So, yeah. So, that was the costume. So, in an interview, Eretia Rika told the BBC... In reality, it has offended many Pacific people. I understand the reasoning behind the grass skirt and the necklace, but the brown skin is too far, and the tattoos are culturally misappropriated. Tattoos are deeply meaningful to, to Pacific people. Like a fingerprint, a tattoo is unique to each person. Our markings tell a personal story that we carry with us on our skin everywhere we go, constantly reminding us of our values, our people, and our identity. It is considered taboo and extremely disrespectful in many Pacific cultures to wear the marking of a people or place that you are not spiritually or physically connected to. After the release of Moana, Maui may be a Disney character to some, but to many Pacific people, he is real, a hero, ancestor, demigod, and a spiritual guide. Even for Pacific people who don't believe in Maui, replicating a Polynesian tattoo and offering it to children for a price is belittling and trivializing an intimate aspect of Pacific people and culture. I want to end with this. Laurier Students Public Interest Research Group created a campaign called Hashtag I am not a costume to draw awareness to the problematic nature of many Halloween costumes. On their site, they said this. If you're reading this and thinking, but it's just a costume, take a moment to reflect on why you think that's the case. It's likely that your culture and identity has not been historically and currently trivialized, mocked, and viewed as funny or scary. It may be viewed as just a joke, but that joke comes at the real expense of folks' safety and security. Oppression is not just held up by very public, aggressive, and physical violent forms of attack. It is also held up by the denial of rights, by stereotypes, and by dehumanizing folks through jokes and caricatures. Why can privileged folks try on stereotypes and cultural dress for a night, but marginalized folks can't even exist safely? So to learn more, check out the site www.lspirg.org slash costumes. We'll put it in our description. To read more about the Laurier Student Public's Interest Research Group's campaign, hashtag I am not a costume. They're located in Ontario, but have many amazing campaigns they have led for consent, gender pronouns, land acknowledgements, and more. All right, Amanda, we probably know what your favorite part is, but tell us what your favorite part is. Uh, well, it's actually kind of hard this episode because Kenny died multiple times, but it obviously has to be when Kyle came through with the chainsaw and sliced Kenny in half and was like, oh my God, I killed Kenny. I'm a bastard. 
really threw it back on him. Oh, yeah. And you, Sophie, what was your favorite part? So my favorite part is when Cartman sits down with the principal and she's like, we need to watch this video. And it's a very oddly specific school education video called Dressing Like Hitler in School Isn't Cool. And I just wonder, like, how many kids came to school just as Hitler before they were like, we need to make a video. We need to get that education out there. Boy, this is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Also, how many other videos do they have? Like, I just want to know, like, just the specifics of it all. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We will be putting out episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at two female prime ministers. Reach out to us and let us know what you liked, how we can improve, and share us with your friends. And if you really like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. We hope after listening to our show today, you thought, you know, I learned something today. Bye! Bye.